We are in part four of our sermon series called The Battle Within, and we have been looking at the internal battles that we face with our emotions. Every single one of us face struggles and emotions, um, and sometimes emotions, as you all know, can be hard to control. Whether they're the emotions of shame or regret or anxiety or disappointment or anger or bitterness or maybe even depression, Man, we know that the enemy, our enemy, the devil, wants to attack us through our emotions. And we know that this battle is a spiritual battle and we must engage this battle. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about something that every one of us are all too familiar with, an emotion that every one of us understand. Because if you have ever tried to reason with a teenager, you understand what I'm about to talk about. Any of you raise a teenager that you told them to do one thing and they did the exact opposite of what you told them? So frustrating. If you have ever driven behind the slowest person on the highway in the fast lane, you know what I'm about to talk about. If you have ever noticed that there are only two squares of paper on the toilet paper roll, you know what I'm about to talk about. I'm talking about anger this morning. This is an emotion that every one of us have to deal with. And uh, man, you might have heard some of those illustrations and immediately thought of, yeah, yeah, I saw some of your heads nodding. I saw some of you grinning. Like, yeah, I've been there. I felt that emotion and maybe I haven't controlled it very well um, through the years. Well, I want to share a story with you that I heard recently about an elderly couple. They had been married for decades uh, they'd just been through everything that life threw at them, all the ups and the downs. And they were kind of reminiscing about the years that they had spent together. And they were reminiscing through all of the fights that they had fought. And the wife in the midst of the conversation, it was a very peaceful, cordial conversation. She just stops and says, honey, I, I'm just in awe of how calm you managed to stay over the years when we argue. You just don't seem to get too angry. You don't seem to get too worked up. And uh, she's like, I always blow up in anger and I always start yelling and screaming at you. How do you manage to stay so calm? And the husband replies to her and says, well, it's, it's really easy. Every time you blow up at me, I just go and clean the toilet. She's like, clean the toilet? Really? Like that does that for you? He says, well, sure, because every time I clean the toilet, I use your toothbrush. <laughs> so... <laughs> you know, there are, there are bad ways to deal with anger, and then there are good ways to deal with anger. And this morning, I want to talk with you about some of the bad ways, maybe the emotion-driven ways that we deal with anger. But I also want to look at the flip side, at a more redemptive side of anger, like a gospel-driven way that we can look at anger. And I want to look at a story in the Old Testament. In fact, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17, that's where we're going to start. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, so I apologize. I may move a little bit faster than some of you are comfortable with, but we have a lot of text that I want to cover today, and I think that it will be helpful and edifying to you. So we're going to look at a story um, in the book of Exodus. Actually, we're going to look at two stories in Exodus and in Numbers that shows us um, about a people, the Israelites, who were wandering through the desert and how they didn't deal with their anger in a very redemptive way. And this first incident that we're going to look at is at the very beginning of their 40-year desert wilderness wanderings, okay? So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 17. We're going to read the first 
seven verses um, this morning. And I want to, this is really a text to set up what we're going to read in Numbers chapter 20. But it says this in verse 1 of Exodus 17. Now, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. They were angry and they started fighting with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses. You can see their anger and their frustration is building. And they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And so you can see this building frustration that's happening in Exodus chapter um, 17. And there, this is a, the beginning of a decades-long trust-building exercise that God has with his people. Because the reality is, is that the Israelites did not yet trust fully the Lord their God. And God wanted to grow them. He wanted them to trust in him and him only. And... um Man, they thought that at this moment, because they lacked faith, they lacked trust in God, they thought that God had delivered them from the, uh, the, the clutches of Pharaoh out of Egypt and just left them to die in their dehydration. And so they're growing in frustration, and they vent their frustration at God toward Moses, who was God's spokesman. Now, let's read on in verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you... Um, some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Now there's, there's, um, you're going to see a pattern here of striking like uh, this staff and how God has used it and is going to use it. He says, uh, take the staff, which is, uh, which you struck the Nile and go behold in verse six, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He obeyed God exactly as God told him to do. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so in their anger, the people begin to quarrel with Moses and take their frustration and their anger out on God. They begin to focus it toward the man named Moses. Now, I want to fast forward. That's a setup for what, where we're going to hang out this morning. I want to fast forward 40 years to the book of Numbers. And so turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20. We're going to look through several passages of Scripture this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to kind of set this up because God has let the Israelites continue to wander in the wilderness so he could establish trust with them before they enter into the promised land. Um, and so I think that's a really critical thing for us to remember that God didn't just leave them out there or abandon them. He was building trust with them. And this is where we start learning lessons about uh, the dangers of emotion-driven anger. And we're going to see what happens when emotion drives uh, when emotion drives our anger. And, and so I want to give you two perspectives this morning. We're gonna, I'm going to give you four quick points 
on emotion-centered anger. And I'm going to give you four quick points at the end on gospel-driven or gospel-centered anger. So if you have your programs this morning, this would be a really good morning to take them out and and follow along by taking some notes. But I want to start in um, verse 1 of Numbers chapter 20. And we're going to kind of break this passage down and learn some things from Moses, the people of Israel, and how destructive anger can be if we don't control it. So it starts in verse 1. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam, Moses' sister, died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation. This is going to sound really familiar. There was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grains or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. And so this sounds very familiar. In fact, when I read this this week in study and preparation for my, my sermon on anger, I was like, is this the same account just shared two different times in two different parts of, 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 of the Old Testament? And I realized this very definitely is two different accounts. But I want to tell you this. I want to start out with point number one by saying this, that um, emotion-driven anger often stems from our unmet expectations. Understand that our emotion-driven anger stems from unmet expectations. And so there is a nation of two million people, and they were promised that they would be delivered out of the hands of Egypt, that they would be given the promised land, that they would be able to settle there, that they would dwell there. And this was a land that was flowing with milk and honey, and it was a desirable place to live. And they were looking forward to this for 40 years, but all they've known over the course of 40 years is, um, you know, a nomadic lifestyle. They've lived on a diet of manna, steady diet of manna every day for 40 years. You know, they've watched their brothers and their sisters and their moms and their dads and their aunts and their uncles and their grandparents all pass away. In fact, an entire generation of people died that never got to walk into the land of promise. And all of these wanderings, all of these sojourns, all of the difficulties of living a nomadic lifestyle, where has it led them after 40 years? Right back to the exact same place where they were 40 years ago. The same place, the same rock, the same situation, the same scenario. And in their minds... Their expectations had not been met. Like in their minds, God had not lived up to his end of the bargain. So they get frustrated. They get angry and they start taking their frustrations out on a tangible target. And that tangible target just so happens to be Moses, the man who was used by God to deliver them. And, and the unfortunate thing for Moses is that he's just a messenger here. He's just, uh, he's not the sayer. He's not the decider. God is the one that is driving all of this. And Moses is just a peacekeeping ambassador between God and his people. But the Israelites, they cry out in anger. Why have you led us to this evil place? We can't grow grain here. We can't grow figs here. There's no water here. Man, they just start complaining and quarreling with Moses. And my question to you is, how many times have you said or done something that you regretted later because things didn't work out 
how you thought they should. How many times have your expectations gone unmet and you said or did something that you knew you would regret? Now, I know that each and every one of us have expectations and and sometimes reality doesn't meet those expectations. And, And I would tell you that my daughter, who is nearly 20 years old, when she was 13, had a moment where um, her expectations were not her reality. And she wrote about it in her journal, which I'm going to read to you this morning. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, I, I went into my daughter's room. I found her journal and I decided to read it. What, what are you going to do, right? Um, so this is Sydney. Actually, she gave me permission to read this. She found it this week in one of the boxes that was in our garage. And she started laughing hysterically at what she wrote. But you want to talk about unmet expectations. This is 13-year-old Sydney in 2017. It says, Dear God, Mom and Dad are being so grumpy today. They're getting mad at us for no reason at all. I understand that they're stressed and everything, but that doesn't mean they should take everything out on on us. I can't help but laugh. (laughs) I would just wish that they would not be so grumpy all the time. They're starting to act like old people. (laughs) Keep in mind, I'm about 38 years old at this point. They got all mad because I had a pair of pants and a couple of socks on the floor. They said my room was such a mess and took my Kindle and my phone from me for no reason at all. Everything is such a big deal to them lately. The smallest things. They don't see any of my stuff lying around like Finley, um, which is her youngest sister. Um, Dad just yells all the time. They have no reason to be all mad at us. I got my homework done. I haven't watched TV in over two days. And I have cleaned, um, I have cleaned my room this morning, aka every day. Um, please calm them down and help them not to be, help them to be less grumpy and angry like old people. Thank you. Sincerely, Sydney Standridge. P.S. I wasn't even on technology. This is ridiculous. <laughs> My daughter had unmet expectations, right? She was angry. She was angry with me and my wife because we were angry at her. But guess what? I have expectations too, Missy. And my expectations were that she would keep her room clean. And so both of us get angry at each other because we have expectations that are not being met. So we go back to our story of Moses, and Moses here has some expectations too. He's tired of the Israelites and all their complaining. He's tired of putting out fires. He's tired of being judge and jury. He's tired of all of their disobedience. He's tired of taking all of the bullets and the the people's rebellion against God. Moses was disappointed in the people as he journeyed with them. And all of us, we experience disappointment and hurt in life. There's no doubt we're going to go through that. And we try to protect ourselves from those feelings by expressing our anger. So my question to you is who or what has hurt you because your expectations about them or the situation were not met? Why are you carrying around anger? What is boiling up inside of you and weighing you down because of unmet expectations? And folks, I want to tell you the problem with emotional anger, emotion-driven anger, is that it rarely delivers the desired outcome. 
We can burst out in anger and say things and do things that we later regret in the moment it might feel good, but rarely does it bring the outcome that we desire. That's the first thing that we learn from Numbers chapter 20. The second thing is that emotion-driven anger feeds the flesh. Let's read Numbers chapter 20. Let's jump down to verse 10. It says this, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, And he said to them, here now, man, I I hope his voice didn't crack like mine just did. He said, here now, you rebels. That's better. Here now, you rebels. Um, Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Man, Moses is in a fit of rage right now. He's, He's ticked off at these people. And I want you to know that there's a couple of things going on. First of all, understand that there's a nation of people that are actually frustrated that they were brought out of Egyptian slavery. They're frustrated that they can't go back to the old world. They're like, why did you lead us out here? Even slavery, even bondage for 400 years was better than what you led us to. And so they're getting, um, man, they're getting frustrated that they've been led out of the world. And I want you to understand that Egypt is a picture of the world. And it just goes to prove that you can take people out of the world, but it is really difficult to take the world out of people. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Because when, when the, 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 the seed of the world takes root in our lives and begins to grip our hearts, it is very difficult to walk away from that world. And unfortunately, every one of us knows someone in our life that the seed of the gospel took root, but then the world creeped in. And it crept in and it just took them away and pulled them away from God. It is difficult to take the world out of people, even though it can be done. But um, so, so here's God and he's trying to eliminate the old ways of the people. He's trying to say, let's take you out of the world. I want you to trust and obey simply me. I don't want you to look to the ways of the world. And so he's trying to eliminate these old habits and it's taken 40 years to do. But their hearts, the hearts of the Israelites, they keep traveling backwards. They keep wanting and craving the old ways of the world. Their flesh was continually craving that and the bondage that it, that it brought. And the second thing I want you to understand from this passage that we just read is that Moses was likely at a place where he was beat up and broken down emotionally and probably spiritually. His sister, who was very much a hero in his life, was a kind of a co-leader with him in some ways, was a confidant, was an advisor to him, had just passed away. And so he is grieving the loss of his sister. He's now spent decades taking friendly fire from within the camp. He's tired from all of the complaints and all of the work and all of the wandering himself. And the fact is, is that Moses didn't ask for any of this. He didn't volunteer for this role to be a deliverer. God sought him out and God chose him. So imagine Moses' exhaustion at 120 years old. He's wiped out and he has a moment. He has a moment where he caves into the flesh. The meekest man that ever lived caved into the flesh. And he gets sideways and he starts name calling. Here now, you rebels, every one of us as meek as we might be, as calm as we can be at times, every one of us will act out in anger when the flesh takes over. Because let's be honest, it feels good. What are the things that you say? What are the things that you do in anger that feed the flesh? So here's Moses. 
He's started the name calling. He's acting out in anger. He's feeding the flesh. And then he starts to take glory for what God's about to do. He starts craving the glory. And don't we do this? Don't we try to take the glory from God in our own lives? Don't we try to help him out? And even in our, in our, our fits of rage and our fits of anger, aren't we in some way saying, God, I'm going to help this situation by getting angry and acting out in this, by speaking out. And of course, there are times where we should speak out in anger, but we're going to talk about that gospel-driven way that we should in a few moments but oftentimes, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, when we, when we speak out and act out in anger, a lot of times it is emotion-driven and it is destructive. And so this is what Moses had done. He's stealing the glory from God. And that's what we do so many times. We think, oh man, I'm going to make this situation better by uh, executing my own judgment, by stepping into the place of God. I'm going to sleep better tonight when I say this or get this off of my chest or when I act out in this way. The Bible tells us to take a different path. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it says this. Um, it says, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Folks, when we walk in the Spirit, we don't have to give in to the flesh. And so many times when we do, it leads to destruction. It leads to heartache and hurt. Number three, the third thing I notice from Numbers chapter 20 about emotion-driven anger is that it leads to disobedience to God. It leads to disobedience to God. I want to look back to uh, verse 7 in Numbers chapter 20, and I want to read verse 7 and 8, and then we're going to jump down to verse 11, because I want to tie this kind of tie this together. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Now remember, what he told Moses 40 years ago was to strike the rock. Now he's telling him to speak to the rock. This is very different, and this is very important to understand. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them, and give them drink to the congregation and their cattle. Now jump down to verse 11. And Moses lifted up his hands, and he struck the rock. He did exactly what God told him not to do. He struck the rock with his staff twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and the livestock. And so this is where Moses has now fed the flesh. He has given in. He's not walking in that spirit. And in his anger, he just directly disobeys God. He does exactly what he's not supposed to do. And you might be thinking to yourself, what's the big deal? Like, God told him 40 years ago, strike the rock. Maybe he's just drawing upon that memory. Maybe it's habit. Maybe it's like, hey, this is what I did 40 years ago, so it'll work again. And so he decides to do what he did 40 years earlier. What's the big deal? Is God overreacting? And what I would tell you, that, uh, I would tell you is, is this, that God is not overreacting to what Moses did because God has to punish Moses for his disobedience. And the reason he's not overreacting is because this moment, this rock is a picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. When you go back to Acts, or uh, sorry, Exodus chapter 17 and Moses struck that rock, that's a picture of Jesus being struck. He is our rock. He is our foundation. He is the, 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 the water that gives life. He is life-giving water to us. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews that our Messiah, our Savior, is to be struck down once for all sin. And so by Moses disobeying God 40 years later and striking that rock a second time, he's destroying the picture that God is setting up for redemption and for the Messiah who is Jesus Christ to come. He's destroying this, 
this word picture, if you will, and, um, and God can't let this go. And so it looks like if God doesn't punish this sin, that maybe Jesus needs to be killed, maybe he needs to be sacrificed, maybe he needs to be struck down multiple times for our salvation, which we know is not the truth. And so God has to do something with this sin because Moses has been directly disobedient. And also this, Moses is presenting himself as a Messiah in this moment. If you catch those words where he says, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Moses is like, do I need to bring you the water? We all know who brought the water and it is not Moses, it is God. And Moses is putting himself in the place of God in this moment. And this is disobedience. And yeah, Moses is kind of half obedient in this moment. Like he doesn't ignore the command. He just kind of takes the command and does what he wants to do. But I would tell you this, Christian, that half obedience to God is still full disobedience to God. And so when we feed the flesh in our emotion-driven anger, it leads to uh, direct disobedience of God, which leads to um, my fourth point. Emotion-driven anger brings momentary pleasure, but has long-term consequences. It might bring a moment of satisfaction, but long-term, man, you can pay a high, heavy price. The consequences sometimes are more than we want to pay. You know, there's a story about a lady who once uh, went up to the great evangelist, Billy Sunday, attempting to rationalize her anger, trying to bargain with Billy Sunday, kind of defending herself. And she said, you know what? There's nothing wrong with me losing my temper from time to time. I blow up, I go off the handle, and then it's all over. To which Billy Sunday replied, so does a shot- shotgun. It blows up and it's over, but look at the damage that it leaves behind. Think about that. When we... When we um, react in a fit of rage, it can leave long-term consequences. And I'll be the first to admit to you this morning that a moment where we can release pent-up anger, it does feel good. You know, it's tempting to just unload on someone. It's tempting to act out. It's tempting to rebel. It's tempting to go our own way because we're angry at our life. We're angry at our situation, maybe even angry at our God But the trail of destruction that it leaves behind can have long-term ramifications. So look at verse 12 of Numbers chapter 20. Says this, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, and check that out, Moses is the one who struck the rock, right? Moses is the one who didn't obey God. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So there is, there is damage that is done to Moses, but there is also collateral damage that is done to Aaron. Like he, he has to experience the consequences of Moses' um, you know, disobedience toward God. And, and man, anger that leads to disobedience ultimately it proves that We don't believe God the way that we say we do. And in Moses' case, his disbelief, it cost him dearly. And God, it's like God was saying to him, just do, Moses, just do things my way. Israel, just follow me. Just obey me. Just trust me and me alone. Just do what I tell you to do. Believe what I want to do in and through you. And it's almost like Moses is like in this moment, nope, I've fed the flesh. I've disobeyed. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going my own way. And I'm going to trust myself in this moment more than I trust you, God. 
So 40 years of shepherding for his father-in-law. Think about those years that he spent on the hillsides with the sheep, working for his father-in-law. And then 40 years of leading the Israelites in the wilderness. That's 80 years of preparation for the promised land. And in one moment, it's all taken from him because of one act of disobedience. Now, that's a discouraging story because it almost feels like, man, we mess up one time and God is done with us. But I think the thing that's important for us to remember that can encourage us in the story is that Moses' ultimate, his ultimate prize, his ultimate hope was not in a place. It was in a presence. And he desired more than the promised land. He desired the presence of the God of the universe. And so he never walked away from God, even after God punished him. And I think the thing that's so beautiful about this picture is that Christians, we're going to sin. Like every one of us, we're still working out our salvation. We are not completely wholly sanctified. We are not perfect individuals yet. We're working toward that. And we're working toward Christ-likeness and holiness. But along the way, we're going to fail. We're going to drop the ball. We're going to act out in anger. But the amazing thing is this, is that God in his righteous justice, may have to serve us a punishment, but just because he serves us a punishment doesn't mean that he severs the relationship. Understand that. Like God punishes Moses, but he doesn't break off the relationship. And so Moses, man, he feels, he feels the weight of the consequence of his sin and his disobedience. He gave into an emotional anger and he pays a steep price. So how do we avoid that outcome? Like, can anger be good? Can it be redeemed? Because we all feel it. So what do I do with that? You know, what, like, can God use our anger? And I would tell you that if, if we handle our anger in a gospel-driven way, I believe it can be redeemed. I, I believe it can be used for good purposes. And it can be used, our anger can be used to right the wrongs of the world. And so Paul gives us quickly, he gives us um, some some ideas of how to handle our anger in a more healthy manner, how to handle it and approach it in a gospel-centered way. So now I want to ask you, if you will, you can leave um, Numbers chapter 20, and I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read a few verses here where we're looking at the new covenant. We're looking at Paul saying, hey, Christian, this is how you deal with anger. This is a gospel way to respond to that emotion that is so hard for many of us to control. And I'm going to go through this kind of quickly this morning for the sake of time. But in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 26, I want to read a few passages. It says this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Verse 29, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Man, our words can grieve the Holy Spirit of God inside of us. Our anger, if we don't control it, if we don't harness it, if we don't leverage it for God's purposes, can grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God and Christ Jesus 
forgave you. So this is what we need to know about a gospel-driven anger. An anger that can be redeemed, a healthy approach to our anger. Number one, moving quickly, gospel-driven anger doesn't lead to sin. Verse 26, the first part of that says, it says, be angry and do not sin. See, Paul understood this. God understood this, that we are emotional beings. We as a part of the human experience is to, I guess, experience the range of all of these emotions. And God never tells us not to feel those emotions, but he says, I know you're going to get angry. I know things in the world are going to frustrate you and people are going to disappoint you and situations are going to hurt you and you're going to want to act out and you're going to want to uh, emotionally respond. But God is saying, he's saying, it's not that I don't want you to feel this. I just don't want it to lead to sin. And um, man, I read this quote um, in, a, in a book that I was reading a, a couple of weeks ago. It says this, it says, anger is a destructive energy released in defense of something that you love. And we all love many things. And when those things get hurt or taken advantage of or taken from us, we can get angry in defense of them. And sometimes if we don't act out in the right way, it can be destructive. But I would also tell you that it can be constructive if we handle it in a positive way, just like Jesus, right? Jesus is our model. He got angry at the merchants in the temple. He walks into the temple and he cleanses it. He flips over the tables and he wants to drive out those people that are marginalizing and taking advantage of those who were um, less than, those who were poor, those who were hurting, those who couldn't afford all of these things. They were exploiting good people and Jesus got angry about it, but he didn't let his anger lead to sin or destruction. So in your life, I would tell you to do an anger audit. What are the things that fire you up? What are the things that make you angry? Do they align with the things that make God angry? Do your emotions align with the emotions of God's? And if it is, if they are aligned, I think that's okay. Just don't let it lead to sin. Number two, gospel-driven anger keeps short accounts. Keeps short accounts. The second part of verse 26 says, says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. You know, the wrong kind of anger, it stays with you. It sticks with you. And if you kind of bottle it up, it starts to simmer under the surface. If you don't deal with it, it grows and it grows. It simmers and then it comes to a boil. And that pressure just builds to the point where you've bottled it up as long as you can. And then it just explodes because you're keeping long accounts, because you're not dealing with, it, with, with what's in front of you in a God-honoring way. The right kind of anger, folks, is short-lived. It doesn't keep records of wrongs. You know, I think about 1 Corinthians 13. It talks about what love really looks like. Love confesses. Love forgives. Love repents. And then love moves on. And this is what Jesus did. I talked to you about how he cleansed the temple in Matthew. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. I love this passage of scripture because this is the model of our Savior. This is what he did. Starting in verse 12, I, I, re I referenced earlier the fact that he t went into the temple and turned the, the tables over. Verse 12 of Matthew 21 says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those 
who sold pigeons. He's angry. He's angry that, that his house, his father's house is being exploited and people are taking advantage of others. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus is lighting some people up in a very righteous way. And then notice verse 14. He lights them up and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Like Jesus... Jesus said what he needed to say. He dealt with those people that he needed to deal with. He kept short accounts and then he moved on. And then he went on healing the blind and the lame. I love this example of how Jesus dealt with his anger because he kept short accounts. So how about you today? How about you this morning? Do you keep short accounts? Or do you keep a laundry list of offenses that people have wronged you, how people have wronged you? Do you have a tally of all the people that have done something against you so that you can hold bitterness to, toward them or you can hold, withhold forgiveness from them or you can get even with them or even maybe get ahead? Man, those lists, they will only hurt you. They will only destroy you. And oftentimes they, restore, they destroy your relationship with God. And I would say in here this, this, this morning, there might be some of you in here today where your discipleship, your relationship with God is completely stunted right now because you refuse to forgive. You're holding long accounts with people. Instead of saying, hey, you wronged me. I I don't appreciate what you did. You hurt me in this way. But man, because Christ forgave me, I am obligated to forgive you. And so many of us are, are withholding that forgiveness from others who have wronged us and it's stunting our relationship with the Lord and our discipleship because we refuse to forgive others. Folks, forgiveness is always more powerful than revenge. Number three, gospel-driven anger builds up. It doesn't tear down. Verse 29 of Ephesians chapter four, it says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Yeah, I know, I know it feels good to shred somebody else with a, a scathing remark or with some sort of sarcasm, but you don't have to say the words that are on the tip of your tongue. Put away that old man that wants to use words for destruction, that wants to manipulate, that wants to hurt others, that wants to cut other people down to size. Use your words to edify others. Are your words seasoned with grace? That's the question. And those who have been redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who walk in the spirit of God, even in their anger, can use words to build up. And I don't want to point them out. I'm going to point them out, but I don't want to point too much attention to them. But my friend, Bob Roth, that is one guy. And I know a lot of you will smile, but that is one guy that I sense that even in his anger, he is going to encourage someone else. You ever notice that about Bob? Anytime you have a conversation with him, his words are just seasoned with grace and encouragement and edification. I love that about my friend, Bob. I hope that your words are the same way, even in your anger. Let them build up and not tear down. And then lastly, gospel-driven anger can be controlled. It can be controlled. Look at verses 31 and 32. Um, of Ephesians chapter four, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ 
forgave you. So what are we to put away? We're to put away slander and anger and clamor and bitterness and wrath and slander and malice. These are all expressions of what can consume you if the Spirit of God is not, if, if you're not, I guess, submitting to the Spirit of God inside of you. They can begin to consume you and control you. And holding on to these things, man, they usually affect your relationship with God way more than they do your relationship with others. So the question is, will you be consumed by your emotions? Or will you be controlled by the Spirit of God inside of you? You can have the victory because Christ's Spirit is in you. You can walk in victory over your temper, over your anger. Walk in the Spirit and put away the desires of the flesh. Folks, the gospel of Jesus Christ has brought, he has bought our freedom from this bondage. This bondage to sin, this old way of our flesh, giving in to our anger, succumbing to it, surrendering this area of our lives, saying, I just can't control it. The gospel of Jesus Christ has purchased our victory over our emotions and our anger. So let's fight the battle of anger within. How are you doing in this area? Certainly you don't have to answer that out loud, but do an audit. Ask yourself, how am I doing with my anger? Am I being controlled by it? Am I being controlled by the Spirit of God inside of me? Let's fight this battle because it is a battle within and it is a battle that is worth fighting and finding victory over. Are you being controlled by your flesh or by the Spirit? Don't be like Moses, who in a single moment gave in to the flesh and it cost him because when you give in to the desires of your emotionally charged um, anger, it can cost you more than you want to pay. So let's let the gospel guide us in our anger and use it for redemptive purposes that builds others up and blesses the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.